Thanks to Nightshade Books, we're very excited to be announcing our first giveaway here on The Double Shadow. Nightshade Books is a publisher of weird, fantastic, and horrifying works, as well as The Collected Fantasies of Clark Ashton Smith, an excellent five-volume edition which is available both in print and online as ebooks. What we're going to be giving away today are four titles. The first is The Miscellaneous Writings of Clark Ashton Smith, which is a sort of companion piece to the collected volume set. There's a number of things in here which I have not encountered before, nor have Tim and Phil, so we're very excited about the two copies of that which we're giving away. Then there's The Book of Cthulhu, which is tales inspired by H.P. Lovecraft and general Cthulhu mythos stories by such people as Elizabeth Bear, Ramsey Campbell, Laird Barron, David Drake, Thomas Ligotti, W.H. Pugmire, Tim Pratt, and a number of others. We'll be giving away a copy of Best Horror of the Year, Volume 4, edited by Ellen Datlow, with such featured authors as Laird Barron, Brian Hodge, Stephen King, Alison Littlewood, Livia Llewellyn, Peter Straub, Anna Tabraska, and many others. And finally, we have a copy of Laird Barron's first novel, The Croning, to give away. The Croning is perhaps the closest I've seen to a full-length weird fiction novel nowadays. Laird's short stories are featured in both Best Horror of the Year and The Book of Cthulhu, and it's really an excellent novel. So, how do you win one of these books? Submit your one-to-two-sentence synopsis for a lost or unwritten Averone story. You can include werewolves, gargoyles, vampires, lamias, priests. Phil suggests that you find some way to work in a loop-garou or two. If you read a little bit ahead, you can pick up on some other interesting ideas for what you could include in your synopsis. We'll be taking submissions through Twitter, through Facebook, as comments on our blog, and on our Google Plus page. Ideally, we'd like one to two sentences within the format constraints of the medium. If you have to do more than one tweet for your synopsis, please make sure to at us on both of them and don't go over two so that we can keep track of all the submissions. We'll be taking submissions from now through June 14th. We'll be giving the books away in two ways. First, as a group, we'll evaluate submissions to pick our favorite. That person will receive the miscellaneous writings of Clark Ashton Smith and one of the other titles of their choosing. The remaining three books, including another copy of the miscellaneous writings of Clark Ashton Smith, will be distributed randomly to people who entered. We'll be displaying the winners and all the other entries on our website after the contest is done. So if you're looking for a little inspiration to write your own Averone story, pop by and see what ideas have been put out there. I'm going to start this week off with something that I hope we'll only have to do a few times. Smith's work is much more sexual than many of his well-known weird fiction contemporaries, and sometimes twistedly so. Unfortunately, sometimes that twisting takes the form of rape, sexual assault, or other sexual violence. These stories are rare, but we think it's right to warn our listeners when that happens. If that's something you'd prefer to avoid, you can just skip the episode and tune in next week. We'd rather you enjoy the podcast than be turned off by something unwarned and traumatic. This week, I'm afraid, has to be our first warning for a non-specific, non-graphic, but definite sexual violence. 
As a note, we won't be warning about necrophilia, kidnapping, etc. Only when the story involves, or seems to involve, rape. I have called up in all my years of sorcery, no the worming corpses that he dug with his hands from unconsecrated graves. It is fairly known by few. There were people, but it's mostly priests and women, it is told. Me picked up as they fled, and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect. The double, the double shadow. shadow. A Clark, the Ashton, Ashton, Clark Ashton Smith podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Double Shadow a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim Mucci. I'm Phil Gillette. And I'm Ruth Malinbois. On today's show, we will be covering The Maker of Gargoyles, which I think we're, we're all pretty agreed is our favorite one so far. Definitely. Maker of Gargoyles was first printed in Weird Tales, in August 1932. And it gives us a really good date for establishing yes. a chronology in Aperon because it takes place in 1138, but in 1138 is when the cathedral at Vion is finished. Uh, is is Vion the... It's the capital of Averon, right? I'm not sure if it's actually spelled out as the capital. Phil, did you want to read the beginning of the story for us? I would love to. Among the many gargoyles that frowned or leered from the roof of the new-built cathedral of Lyon, two were preeminent above the rest by virtue of their fine workmanship and their supreme grotesquerie. These two had been wrought by the stone carver Blaise Renard, a native of Lyon, who had lately returned from a long sojourn in the city of Provence, and had secured employment on the cathedral in the three years' task in its construction and ornamentation was well-nigh completed. In view of the wonderful artistry shown by Renard, it was regretted by Ambrosius, the archbishop, that it had not been possible to commit the execution of all the gargoyles to this delicate and accomplished workman. But other people, with less liberal taste than Ambrosius, were heard to express a different opinion. This opinion, perhaps, was tinged by the personal dislike that had been generally felt toward Drenard and Vaillon, even from his boyhood, and which had been revived with some virulence on his return. Whether rightly or unjustly, his very physiognomy had always marked him out for public disfavor. He was inordinately dark, with hair and beard of a preternatural bluish-black, and slanting, ill-matched eyes that gave him a sinister and cunning air. His taciturn and saturnine ways were such as a superstitious people would identify with necromantic knowledge or complicity, and there were those who covertly accused him of being in league with Satan, but the accusations were little more than vague, anonymous rumors, even to the end, through lack of veritable evidence. However, the people who suspected Renard of diabolic affiliations were wont for a while to instance the two gargoyles as sufficient proof. No man, they contended, who was not so inspired by the archenemy, could have carved anything so sheerly evil and malignant, could have embodied so consummately in mere stone the living lineaments of the most demoniacal of the deadly sins. The two gargoyles were perched on opposite corners of the high tower of the cathedral. One was a snarling, murderous, cat-headed monster with retracted lips revealing formidable fangs and eyes that glared intolerable hatred from beneath ferine brows. This creature had the claws and wings of a griffin, and it seemed as if it were poised in readiness to swoop down on the city of Lyon like a harpy on its prey. Its companion was a horned satyr, with the vans of some great bat such as might roam the nether caverns with sharp, clenching talons and a look of satanically brooding lust, as if it were gloating above the helpless object of its unclean desire. 
both figures were complete, even to the hindquarters, and were not mere conventional adjuncts of the roof. One would have expected them to start at any moment from the stone in which they were mortized. So yeah, so there we have the basic setup. We have the newly completed Cathedral of the Own. We have the newly carved gargoyles set on it, carved by uh, Blaise Reynard, our, I guess, main character. Yeah, he's definitely the main character, right. but I, I don't know uh, if he's necessarily... Passive, right. yeah. I mean, except for his work. And then we have uh, the introduction to Ambrosius, a lover of art, the Archbishop <laughs> of the own. I, uh, Ambrosius and Renard Blaise, or I'm sorry, Blaise Renard. Was it Blaise Renard or Renard Blaise? Blaise? Yeah, Blaise Renard. Blaise Renard yeah. are two of my favorite Averone characters yeah. in all the stories. Uh, later, I think my, actually my number one favorite Averone character is Gaspard de Nord, but we don't get to him until oh, a little no. bit later. I uh, I just feel like Ambrosius, Ambrosius, the art-loving, liberal-minded archbishop of Leon, is just such an awesome creation. He doesn't really even say anything in the story. No. I just love him. And Renard, actually, his name has a special meaning. Um, it's related to the word fox, and it's part of a set of tales, if you think about... Um, Chanticleer, for example, the Chanticleer type tales, um, where he's an anthropomorphic fox and a trickster figure, somewhat like Coyote in Native American legend history. And so I'm not sure if Smith was aware of this and was playing off of it, but it would seem unlikely that he was unaware at least of the connotation with fox. Right. Because Renard's character is not really a trickster figure, but there is something special and different, more than human, about him. Yeah, he's an amazing stone worker. He returned from Provence to come back to live in Vion, where he is kind of uh, mistrusted and hated. Um, we also learn in the beginning of the story that he he's always been in love with the the daughter of the taverner. Nicolette Viome. There, there are actually a few things in this opening section that I think are really interesting. Like, this whole opening section of the story, I mean, aside from setting up the gargoyles, aside from setting up Blaise Renard, <laughs> uh, like, Smith spends a lot of time, not a lot of time, but enough time sort of painting almost a sociological picture of Vion. Like, right. we learn that Vion Viennese are kind of racist. Like, they... They, they don't like Blaze because he's dark-skinned. Right. I mean, I don't think he's necessarily African-looking, but he's described as dark-skinned. Probably more sallow. Yeah. Um, and then there are these two other passages that I think are kind of, not necessarily hilarious, but very clever in their observation of human nature and the Viennese in general. First is one, um, and it's in a passage that's sort of about the gargoyles and like the general man on the streets opinion of the gargoyles and it goes as follows of course they admitted a certain amount of protestant is requisite in gargoyles but in this case the allowable bounds had been egregiously overpassed <laughs> which i just find hilarious because it's like and very true human nature like people will i think often say oh well that is what it should be but it's too much that right, like, right. that's you know like it's, <laughs> it just seems like a very grounded man on the street observation right but they uh, also it also seems like they're 
they're supplementing their opinion of the gargoyles with their already dislike and mistrust of Reynard. Yes. But then this leads into my second tiny little passage that I think is fascinating um, that goes like this. However, with the completion of the cathedral, and in spite of this adverse criticism, the high-poised gargoyles of Blaise Renard, like all other details of the building, were soon taken for granted through, uh, through mere everyday familiarity, and eventually they were almost forgotten. Which I think is also true of people, that there can mm-hmm. be amazing things, and if you see them every day, or amazing or horrible things, if you see them every day, suddenly you're totally like, yeah, whatever, I'm over it. And you don't even, and you just not even like you're whatever, I'm over it. You just cease to see them anymore in those two passages i think uh are really i mean insightful maybe of the viennese but also insightful of uh i guess mankind in general and a few passages down it kind of introduces or asks the question the story asks the question what reynard himself thinks of the gargoyles and the passage goes like this he would have said if asked for the reason for his satisfaction that he was proud of a skillful piece of handiwork he would not have said, and perhaps would not have even known, that in one of the gargoyles he had imprisoned all of his festering rancor, all of his answering spleen and hatred toward the people of Vion, who had always hated him, and had set the image of his rancor to peer venomously down forever from a lofty place. And perhaps he would not even have dreamt that in the second gargoyle he had somehow expressed his own dour and satyr-like passion for the girl Nicolette, a passion that had brought him back to the detested city of his youth after years of wandering, a passion singularly tenacious of one object, and differing in this regard from the ordinary lusts of a nature so brutal as Reynard's. So I think I think that passage is really interesting in a storytelling sense because he kind of, this is the point of the story. He kind of gives it to us and says... Mm-hmm this is what's going on. And we also know that Reynard came back to stay in Vion because of his unnatural ardor for Nicolette Vion. Yes, and I think this is where I got really sold on the story. Not because the gargoyles were in, in encompassing his rage and his lust, but for the fact that he's such a, such a devoted and consummate artist that it just came out of him and that he is not even completely unaware of it. And he kind of remains unaware of this through most of the story. That really, really sold Yeah, I know. Part. As readers, we know. So we know what's going on. And I like come. that too. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Not, he's giving us a nod and a wink, but he's not, exactly. he's not pretending like we, we don't know. Right. Because we will figure it out pretty quickly. Do you think this is the only time we'll encounter a character who... Smith could have made into a necromancer and chose not to. I don't know because really I, mean, I think necromancers. he he loves the necromancers <laughs> and I feel like what I mean I think as you're both saying like one of the best things about the story and this is maybe an observation for the end of the story is uh, is that he isn't really he hasn't purposefully made these things like no. he has no no necromantic abilities like he, he's not a golemist he can't make he doesn't he's not aware of his ability to make stone move. Um, and he's, in a sense, kind of just a victim of his own passions and, like, artistic ability, which is really kind of fascinating. Yeah, I don't know if I can think of offhand another character like him in his stories. So then the story goes on to say that at the time of the story, it's 1138, which we mentioned before. Um, but it also kind of gives a uh, a portrait of the province of 
Averone in general, that on, on two sides of the own is the great shadow-haunted forest, a place of equivocal legends of loop gurus and phantoms. Ah, there we go. There we are. Uh-huh. I'm telling you, they're <laughs> out there. But, but basically, uh, Smith goes on to explain that this area is completely and utterly saturated with demons and monsters and... Here he says, of course, as in all medieval towns, there had been occasional instances of alleged sorcery or of demoniacal possession, and once or twice the perilous temptations of succubi had made their inroads on the pious virtues of Vion. But this was nothing more than might be expected in a world where the devil and his works were always more or less rampant. So, But still, the, the town doesn't have the same reputation as forest. No, I think that that's... Yeah, that's what he's saying, is that Vion is kind of the, the the bastion. This is where people go to get away from the demons and the incubi and succubi. That... Not as good as you'll get, the occasional succubus. And, right. you, know, <laughs> you just have to live with it. Right. Is is this, uh, and you forgive me for not remembering um end of the story that well, is this the first time in his in an actual story that Smith lays out as much as he ever does, the actual mythology of Averon? I mean, I feel like it it gets it gets mentioned slightly in last week's story where um, Gerard is kind of remembering that there are these stories about the forest, but it's not like it, it's not quite to the same level as it's being laid out here. Yeah. I don't think yeah, there wasn't that much an end of the story either. We yeah. heard a little bit about the chateau, but nothing much else. I think this this is the most purposeful. I mean, it, feel, it feels almost to me like a real statement of um, he's building you know, a world. If, yeah, exactly. Like a real statement of, of mythology of this place that he now has been in, been writing about for for two stories, and will go on to write about for many more as we'll cover. Which right. I think makes it kind of an interesting passage. Yeah, to me, it feels like this story, and I think that's why I like it so much. It feels like this is Smith really settling in to the weird tale, like saying, mm-hmm. "Oh, I can actually develop and build ideas, and not just." throw senses at you and give you an ending mm-hmm. i think settled, settling into everon as a setting as a, as a world he's created too yeah yep. mm-hmm. so then what happens well that autumn things start getting kind of bad um first a couple of people are going home um in november and they are accosted by a flying monster which descends and tears one of them in shreds but the other one escapes. So fortunately he survived to tell the tale so that they know that there's this flying monster right. that's uh, haunting the people of Averon. And then shortly thereafter, well they, they try to um, they try to go they find the body armed with holy water and aspergillus. And Mushrooms. I'm gonna have to get this because yeah, there's I'm gonna have to get a picture of an aspergillum right. and an aspergillus and put that in the show notes. Oh, that's because, a good idea. It just keeps amusing me every time I see it. So they've got the townspeople with torques and, uh, torches and staves and habillards and the priest with his stuff, and they all go and find the body, and it's just torn apart. And everybody's pretty freaked out, and then they're doing rites of exorcism in all the public places and holy water. We've already got several churches as well as the cathedrals. So it's a very clergy-ish town. Yeah, the cathedral city of Vion. But it doesn't work. Because then the people kind of see and hear, and they look, peer out their windows, and they see this guttural growling of the sea, um, wings 
they blot out the stars that's flying up over the city. And at this point, people just stop going out at night as far as they go. And it's not even like this could be attributed to, you know, like a band of thugs or murderers, because uh, as the story says, because people survive these attacks. And the story says those who saw it and survived were wont to describe it variously and with much ambiguity, but all agreed in attributing it to the head of a ferocious animal and the wings of a monstrous bird. Some, the most learned in demonology, were fain to identify it with Modo, the spirit of murder, and others <laughs> took it for one of the great lieutenants of Satan, perhaps a Maimon or Alistair, gone mad with exasperation at the impregnable supremacy of Christ in the holy city of Vions. Um, yeah, I like that they're blaming it on the cathedral. Like, Have either of you guys, just a little sidetracking from the story, have either of you guys read um, The Marquis? by Guy Davis, the, uh, the graphic novel. No, I haven't. Uh, this reminds me a lot of that, where there's like this holy warrior fighting demons and this weird uh, kind of proto-French Venetian. It, it's interesting. It, it, it reminds me like I love stories about a community, like communal terror. Right. Uh, and it reminds me very much of, uh, of China Manville's Perdido Street Station, which is, um, if you haven't read it, is about this sort of super weird steampunky-ish city um, that is in similar fashion. It's not haunted by um, by murderous gargoyles, but it's haunted by these monsters called slate moths that sort of come out of the night and, and swoop down and, and take people away and, and murder them. And it, the book does a great job of sort of portraying a city racked with a kind of unknowable terror. And the story um, definitely reminded me of that. I just, I don't know. I get some kind of... Um, kick out of stories that do i guess just like what i said like a communal terror well like it in it and the idea that like everybody has the same fear and they won't go out at night and they're all kind of afraid of the same thing i think is really fun and interesting and, and upsetting because it's kind of like how you you know how you do experience fear like i'm afraid of the same things my neighbors are you know right. it has a, has a kind of truth to it and I like that the Archbishop himself, as well as subordinate clergy, confessed an inability to cope with the ever-growing horror. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what was the Archbishop's name? Archbishop, that's Ambrosius, right? yes. <laughs> he's a lover of art. They send an emissary to Rome to procure water that had been specially sanctified by the Pope thinking that that would help. Is that in I think so. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> way um, to lose all our Catholic audience. Go <laughs> Well, I didn't, I didn't, what am I, I you know. That's blessed. Tim, what were you saying that they were going to do? Uh, they, how this works. <laughs> none of the uh, kind of holy rituals or uh, religious tax that they take work. These, this monster keeps attacking. It's here when he kills the abbot. Right, when the, the creature actually bursts into the into well, the cathedral, or is that a little First he kills the abbot right. of one of the local yep. monasteries. He was out at night because he was administering extreme unction, so he really couldn't help but being out at night. And then they're having his funeral the next night, and his torn body's lying there in the cathedral. Masses are being said, tapers are being burnt, there's priests, everything, and... Bam! The demon invaded the nave through the open door, extinguished all the candles with the flap of its city wings, and dragged down no less than three of the officiating priests to an unholy death in the darkness. 
that sentence is amazing. Like, I, so much happened right there. He totally Batmans that funeral. Yes. Yep. In, like, the worst way possible. And it's absolutely <laughs> amazing. And this is when they realize that their faith is not going to help. And then and there's well, a deplorable outbreak of human crime and Satanism. Yes. So this, the own, you know, they're kind of, they're kind of dim. They'll just go with Vion whatever. is like what is always going on inside my subconscious, I think. Like, it's just always demons flapping through cathedral doors. The rape, not so much, but like uh, these outbursts of like ridiculous Satanism and like people panicking. I sort of feel like. Yeah, anyway, once, once they, um, once everybody is fairly certain that they can't combat this, this flying death machine more stories start coming out of a second creature then in the midst of all this pan demoniacal fear and confusion it was rumored that a second devil had been seen in Vion. that the, the murderous fiend was accompanied by a spirit of equal deformity and darkness whose intentions were those of lechery and which molested none but women this creature had frightened several dames and demoiselle and maidservants into a very a veritable hysteria by peering through their bedroom windows and had sidled lasciviously with uncouth mouths and grimaces and grotesque flappings of its bat-shaped wings for others who had occasion to fare from house to house across the nocturnal streets. However, strange to say, there were no authentic instances in which the chastity of any woman had suffered actual harm from this noisome incubus. Many were approached by it and were terrified immoderately by the hideousness and lustfulness of its demeanor, but no one was ever touched. Even in that time of horror, both spiritual and corporeal, there were those who made a rival jest of the singular abstention on the part of the demon, and said it was seeking throughout Lyon for someone whom it had not yet found. When I reached this part in the story, I literally had chills, because in the beginning he mentions how the two gargoyles were imbued with these attributes of Reynard and that the satyr-like one was imbued with uh, an, an uncouth lust for Nicolette. So then there's this demon searching for a woman who yeah, it hasn't this, found yet. And I have to say that that to, that to me is almost scarier than having a demon out there. Absolutely. Just because if it hadn't like sidled up to me yet and given me the look over and said, no, you aren't the one that I want and, and got away, then I would be terrified that this, that I was the one it was looking for. If, you know, it had checked out several of my friends. And, like, it's, it's narrowing down on its prey. Yeah. And so it's, it's a hunt. It's not just a, it's not it's, just an, oh, murder demon swoops down and right. does stuff. It's, it, this one's hunting and that's, there's an amazing, like, one-upmanship that Smith does it to himself in, like, these four paragraphs we just went over, where it's like, oh, he kills an abbot. Oh, but then he bursts into a church and kills two more priests. Oh, but you know what's even scarier than that? There's this horrible lust monster that is, like, peering into people's windows at night, specifically hunting for this one person. Like, it's an amazing escalation of yeah. really intense and horrific ideas. It's just really impressive how powerful it is. Yeah, and then the story switches gear, and then we go back yep. to uh, Blaise Renard and his awful, sad little life, living in, in a dark alleyway. His rooms are in a dark alleyway near the uh, tavern, presumably so he could keep track of Nicolette. And it's interesting that he also suffers the the suffocating burden of superstition's terror right. during those nights when the fiendish marauder was hovering above the town. He leaves his room and he goes to the tavern. 
autumn nights had been moonless. Now, on the evening that followed the desecration of the cathedral itself by the murderous devil, a newborn crescent was lowering its fragile, sanguine-colored horn beyond the housetops as Reynard went forth from his lodgings at the accustomed hour. He lost sight of its comforting beam in the high-walled and narrowed alley, and shivered with dread as he hastened onward through shadows that were dissipated only by the rare and timid ray from some lofty window. It seemed to him, at each turn and angle, that the gloom was curded by the unclean umbrage of satanic wings, and might reveal in another instant the gleaming of abhorrent eyes ignited by the everlasting coals of the pit. When he came forth at the alley's end, he saw with a start a fresh panic that the crescent moon was blotted out by a cloud that had the semblance of uncouthly arched and pointed vans. He reached the tavern with a sense of supreme relief before he had begun to feel a distinct intuition that someone or something was following him, unheard and invisible, a presence that seemed to load the dusk with prodigious menace. He entered and closed the door behind him, very quickly, as if he were shutting it in the face of a dread pursuer. There were few people in the tavern that evening. The girl, Nicolette, was serving wine to a mercer's assistant, one Raoul Coupain, a personable youth and a newcomer in the neighborhood, and she was laughing with what Reynard considered unseemly gaiety at the broad jests and amorous sallies of this Raoul. Jean Villon was discussing in a low voice the latest enormities and was drinking fully as much liquor as his customers. Glowering with jealousy at the presence of Raoul Coupain, whom he suspected of being a favored rival, Reynard seated himself in silence and stared malignly at the flirtatious couple. No one seemed to have noticed his entrance, for Villon went on talking to his cronies without pause or interruption, and Nicolette and her companion were equally oblivious. To his jealous rage, Reynard soon added the resentment of one who feels that he is being deliberately ignored. He began to pound on the table with his heavy fist to attract attention. So that kind of gives us an interesting portrait of Reynard. He's just kind of this creep. Yeah, and of, and of the, the life that he lives, so he's a creep and he's a recognized creep, because she seems to she seems to have that vibe about him. Um, I'm going to pretend that Raoul Coupain was, is the manservant Raoul from the previous story, <laughs> Rendezvous in Averone. And maybe the more <laughs> tenuous connections we can make between Averone stories, the better. Do you think that Rendezvous in Averone takes place before this or after? Do they mention the cathedral in no. Rendezvous in Averone? No, Vion no. seems to be an important city. And actually, uh, what's interesting is that the guy that the um, the guy that Gerard, the troubadour in that story, was staying with was the Comte de Fanay, right. I believe. Yep. And when Raoul finally gets to place his order, he asks for a picture of La Frenet. So that's just another oh, yeah. local tie-in. He's really doing some world building in this story. Yeah, La Frenet comes up uh, with spectacular gory results in uh, our next story, Classes of the Lord, as well. <laughs> it all comes together. <laughs> okay, so speaking of coming together, here's this creepy Reynard smashing his fist on the uh, on the table, forcing them to pay attention to him. So Nicolette runs over kind of reluctantly so nicolette served him but then she just goes right back to um flirting with this guy raul and he starts to try to kiss her and then she you know she flips with him she tends to to cuff him lightly and briskly but it's clear to everybody that she's just flirting and he's freaks out a bit and starts to go toward her at which point her dad 
and his friends notice. And um, in fact, back to your table, stone cutter, yeah. he roared belligerently. He, Reinhardt is just kind of like, uh, I mean, what can he do? He's outnumbered, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sits back down and then he, the story says, uh, inconsequently, seemingly, uh, remembers at that moment the dark, ambiguous cloud he had seen across the moon and the insistent feeling of obscure pursuit while he had traversed the alley. Um, and he's sort of sitting there stewing and staring at this group before him. Then the monsters show up spectacularly. Yeah. Bam. Flying monster comes in through the window. I, and I liked, uh, th- there's a line here, the murder monster bursts in and then uh there's a line after that. Behind it now, another shadowy flying monster came in through the broken window with a loud flapping of its ribbed and pointed wings. There was something lascivious in the very motion of its flight. How does that happen? How does something fly lasciviously? I think it's... And if you're not old enough to know for yourself, I'm exactly. not going to Exactly. That is exactly something... I have, I have no comment. Okay. All right. Well, but hold on. I want to just want to point out as as... In related to previous points of Renard, that he, the story makes a point of saying, is just as terrified right. by these things as as everybody else, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty interesting. Like it, I just love the idea of him as powerless observer to his own inadvertent creation. I think is really an interesting character trait. Renard, as well as the other men, was petrified by a feeling of astonishment and consternation so extreme as almost to preclude terror. Voiceless and motionless, they beheld the demoniac intrusion, and the consternation of Renard in particular was mingled with an element of unspeakable surprise, together with a dreadful recognizance. But the girl, Nicolette, with a mad scream of horror, turned and started to flee across the room. As if her cry had been the one provocation needed, the two demons swooped down on their victims. One, with a ferocious slash of its outstretched claws, tore open the throat of Jean Vion, who fell with a gurgling, blood-choked groan. And then, in the same fashion, it assailed Raoul Coupin. The other, meanwhile, had pursued and overtaken the fleeing girl, and had seized her in its bestial forearms, with the ribbed wings enfolding her like a hellish drapery. The room was filled by a moaning whirlwind, by a chaos of wild cries and tossing, struggling shadows. Renard heard the guttural snarling of the murderous monster, muffled by the body of Coupin, whom it was tearing with its teeth, and he heard the lubricious laughter of the incubus above the shrieks of the hysterically frightened girl. Then the grotesquely flaring tapers went out in a gust of swirling air, and Renard received a violent blow in the darkness, the blow of some rushing object, perhaps of a passing wing that was hard and heavy as stone. He fell and became insensible. And when he wakes up, he's the only one alive, he and Nicolette. Out of all the other men in the tavern, not just her dad and Raoul, they're all dead. And Nicolette is, her gown is torn, and her body is crushed, and she's moaning feebly, and the women are trying to take care of her, um, but she's not even able to, to understand that they're there. And everybody's a little bit curious about Renard and why he's alive and pretty much untouched when all the men are dead and the woman's going to suffer. He has no idea. He leaves. He runs out, pushing his way through the crowd. So then he he just feels awful. 
and he runs. You, but you think, I'm sorry, you think in this yeah. moment he, he, he realizes what's happened, right? I mean... Yes, he had that moment of realization. He says the secret of that which he knew was locked in the seething pit of his tortured and devil-ridden soul. And I feel like when he wakes up, he pretty much understands, even though he's not able to articulate it, what, what, who the culprits of this Well, I don't know. Thing. Well, yeah, I guess so. I guess there's something... I don't know, I mean, that, that's how I read that sentence. I don't know, maybe maybe it happens later that he realizes. He did recognize them, and, and this is almost like... I almost want to say that at this point he kind of becomes a like hero character. Yeah. Once he, he realizes it, yeah. what happened... He's creepy. He's got all these things inside that he shouldn't have. But when he realizes what what the gargoyles are doing, right? Because it even says heedless of his own possible peril, and then he goes to his workshop and grabs a heavy hammer. I just want to say I'm happy that Smith avoided the temptation of Blaze carrying the hammer with him through the whole story, and right. the gargoyles seeing it and being like, "Hey, why don't you put that hammer down?" And he's like, no, I'm going to hold on to it because I have to kill two vipers with it. And they're like, oh, that's fine. Just keep it with you. And then, you know, that's all. Yeah. It showed incredible restraint on his part. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So he grabs his hammer by half conscious compulsion. He, I, see, this is why I think that he's either denying it to himself, that he knows what's going on, and he's just kind of acting because he knows if he thinks about it, it'll, he won't do it. But he... I mean, I, I feel like he, he knows it, but he's yeah. going to seek confirmation. Right. Mm-hmm. He heads to the cathedral. In the chill and livid light of sunless morning, he emerged on the roof. And leaning perilously from the verge, he examined the carven figures. He felt no surprise, only the hideous confirmation of a fear too ghastly to be named. When he saw that the teeth and claws of the malign, cat-headed griffin were stained with darkening blood, and that the shreds of apple-green cloth were hanging from the talons of the lustful, bat-winged satyr. It seemed to Reynard, in the dim ashen light, that a look of unspeakable triumph, of intolerable irony, was imprinted on the face of this latter creature. He stared at it with fearful and agonizing fascination, while impotent rage, abhorrence, and repentance deeper than that of the damned arose within him in a smothering flood. He was hardly aware that he had raised the iron hammer and had shook wildly at the satyr's horn profile till he heard the sullen, angry clang of impact and found that he was tottering on the edge of the roof to retain his balance. The furious blow had merely chipped the features of the gargoyle and had not wiped away the malignant lust and exultation. Again, Reynard raised the heavy hammer. It fell on empty air, for even as he struck, the stone carver felt himself lifted and drawn backward by something that sank into his flesh like many separate knives. He staggered helplessly, his feet slipped, and then he was lying on the granite verge, with his head and shoulders over the dark, deserted street. Half swooning and sick with pain, he saw above him the other gargoyle, the claws of whose right foreleg were firmly embedded in his shoulder. They tore deeper, as if with a dreadful clenching. The monster seemed to tower like some fabulous beast above its prey, and he felt himself slipping dizzily across the cathedral gutter, with the gargoyle twisting and turning as if to resume its normal position over the gulf. Its slow, inexorable movement seemed to be part of his vertigo. The very tower was tilting and revolving beneath him in some unnatural nightmare fashion. Dimly, in a daze of fear and agony, Reynard saw the remorseless tiger face bending toward him with its horrid teeth laid bare in an internal rictus of diabolic haste. Somehow, he had retained the hammer, 
With an instinctive impulse to defend himself, he struck at the gargoyle, whose cruel features seemed to approach him like something seen in the ultimate madness and distortion of delirium. Even as he struck, the vertiginous turning movement continued, and he felt the talons dragging him outward on empty air. In his cramped, recumbent position, the blow fell short of the hateful face and came down with a dull clangor on the foreleg, whose curving talons were fixed in his shoulder like meat hooks. The clangor ended in a sharp cracking sound, and the leaning gargoyle vanished from Reynard's vision as he fell. He saw nothing more, except the dark mass of the cathedral tower that seemed to soar away from him and rush upward unbelievably in the livid, starless heavens to which the belated sun had not yet risen. So he falls. He goes to fight them. And he kind of loses. Yeah. Which, yeah, he totally loses. But he should have lost. But, but should he have? I don't, I, I don't know that I think he is guilty of anything. Well, he's guilty of being a creep, but yeah, he hasn't actually done anything himself. And when he found out what was going on, he tried to write it. So Exactly. And he has been noted in the story earlier as being hated for the most baseless of reasons. I mean, he's just kind of a loser. Well, I mean, unless, obviously, unless they recognize within him that evil that could somehow imbue his emotions into inanimate objects. Maybe everybody in the was right all along. Maybe. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's the case, though. I feel they just don't like him because he has darker skin than they do. And that made him into a overly passionate, overly malignant, but very talented artist. And it's very, uh, so is that what this story is about? Oh, wait, let's finish it up first. It was the Archbishop Ambrosius, on his way to early Mass, who found the shattered body of Renard lying face downward in the square. Ambrosius crossed himself in startled horror at the sight, and then, when he saw the object that was still clinging to Renard's shoulder, he repeated the gesture with a more than pious promptness. He bent down to examine the thing, with the infallible memory of a true art lover, who recognized it at once. Then, through the same clearness of recollection, he saw the stone foreleg, whose claws were so deeply buried in Renard's flesh, had somehow undergone a most unnatural alteration. The paw, as he remembered it, should have been slightly bent and relaxed, but now it was stiffly outthrust and elongated, as if, like the paw of a living limb, it had reached for something or had dragged a heavy burden with its ferine talons. Let's just give a round of applause for Archbishop Ambrosius using his appreciation of art, a true art lover, to somehow solve or at least understand the mystery of the gargoyles. <laughs> I awesome. just love him. And Suck at William of Baskerville. <laughs> He's like a proto-William of Baskerville. I found it interesting that um, we don't hear anything more of the story, so apparently with his death, he ended whatever tie they had to his anger and to his lust. A tie that made them come to the place where he was, even though he doesn't destroy them and thus emerge a, a hero who's learned his lesson and stuff. He did repent of what he'd done, um, says that, and then that he gave his life then essentially to save the town. And I like that about this story and this character that he's not irredeemably evil. It's kind of like um it's kind of like a Frankensteinish story. Except yeah, he I didn't think it is, yeah. yeah, he didn't set out to create life. He just was doing his art. But there's something I, I feel about like him. he's really ultimately only guilty of being too good an artist. Like he just felt too much, and he just put too much into those gargoyles. So is that is that what this story is saying? Is that treat artists right? 
well, I, don't, I don't like to put morals on stories. I do want to ask the question, at the very, very start of the story, they mentioned that uh, art-loving, liberal-minded Archbishop Ambrosius regretted that he wasn't able to hire Blaze to make the rest of the gargoyles. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to wonder, like, okay. what what like Blaze's sloth gargoyle would have been like. Oh my like, gosh! Because essentially, what this is hatred and lust, right? So yeah. they probably would have made gargoyles for the other seven deadly sins. And I I just sloth and gluttony just would not have been as impressive. <laughs> Those would have been absolutely horrible. <laughs> and what would right. they have done? Would they have shows just... up at the tavern. <laughs> sloth would yeah, sloth would have like gotten up and moved an inch. Every night, right. but never really gotten <laughs> off the off the. Uh, and they would have eventually been like, huh? There would have just them. been yeah a gargoyle traveling from ledge to ledge for years, and no one really <laughs> knowing why. <laughs> I think um, we should keep. I really feel like that the, the moving gargoyles are mentioned in a later Averon story, but maybe I'm just misremembering. Oh, we can keep our eye out for gargoyles. Yeah. Did we want to go on to the next thing that we have? I don't know. I, I feel like maybe I don't have any more wrap up to say, except that I just think this is of the what is this our fourth story? Mm-hmm. A th- third story. A third story. It's definitely the best of the ones that we've read so far, and I think it's definitely one of my favorites of all the Everone stories. Though we're definitely getting some. Maybe it's my in my top three. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's hard to say. It's definitely one of my favorites, mainly because of the the literary trick he uses of giving us the ending in like the second page so it kind of lends an overall tension to the entire thing i mean if you just left that to the end that these were his his own sins animated i don't think it would have had the same impact because we would have seen it coming already yeah we would have definitely all right yeah so that was the maker of gargoyles thanks so much for listening everybody who's subscribed and thanks again to nightshade books Um, they published some excellent works of clark ashton smith so this has been the double shadow a clark ashton smith podcast join us in our next episode when we discuss the first half of the colossus of you blah 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 it's elorn i think it's elorn I think so too. All right. Thank you for listening. Bye. you're not going to redo that one. Look, one take Tim. That's my new name.